So I just was deeply impressed, not just by a greater measure of the love of God, but on the Father's desire to reveal His love to you in a whole new way. Like There's adventures in the love of God and dimensions of it. Some of us feel like we're starving to feel His love. Others might feel more secure in it. It doesn't matter. Either way, there's so far to go to experience the depths of Father's love. I mean, we'll be doing it for eternity and never plumb the depths. It's, there's no ocean bottom there, so it, it's never ending. But we don't always consider how wonderful God's love is. I feel like He wants to unveil His love for you in Christ by the Holy Spirit in ways that will be surprising and wonderful and that we've never considered before. And my message is, I hope it will, it will do somewhat well along those lines, but I feel like God wants to do it much beyond my message, but he wants to do it in your community. Everything flows from the love of God. Even Jesus' love for us, you know, he said, as the Father has loved me, so do I love you. Abide in my love. So Jesus' love for us, he can afford a reckless love. I'm just kidding. (laughs) He can afford to love limitlessly (laughs) because he feels so deeply beloved. There's no limits to his passion for us and his covenant with us. When we come under the cascade of the Father's love as well in Christ, so Jesus' love also, course, it's all one, then our capacity to love also blows all the doors and windows out of the limits that we have, and then we love. We love one another. That's why Jesus said, you know, I, he, he was an example to us of the way he loved people, the way he loved his disciples. He's an example of the kind of love that we should have for one another. God is love. And we should be assured of his love individually. And we should, with the strength of that love and with the power of that love, that is through the Holy Spirit, we should really love one another. And that becomes definitive. You know, that is like I taught the class this weekend. For those of you who weren't there, most of you, I'm filling you in on the points that are relevant. So don't feel left out. But one of the points that I made was, you know, the, the, the way, even the way we gather physically, when we gather as a church, uh, one of the, the, the most important things we could do is meet as a family. You know, to have an assembly like this where there's teaching is, is very beneficial. We should do this, exactly what we're doing right now. But it should not be the definitive form of church. We should meet the way a family would meet together and love one another. But then we would love in the spirit. We would show one another the gifts we sh- Share meals. I, I believe that, but to me, that's not a technicality. I believe the Lord designed His church in such a way to gather that way with other aspects, you know, that we read about in Scripture. But He designed us to meet that way because that maximizes our ability to love one another. When we meet together as a church, we should we should love one another. We should love on one another. That's the point. We're motivated by love, and we come to show love. Through the Spirit. Thank you very much. Lots of rewards here. Praise God. A cup of cold water. That's a good one. God bless you. And then Chai brought me this one. 
And then this one was already up here. Jose said I could have it, so that's Jose. Well hydrated I am. Thank you very much. So I say all that to say I believe this is a theme that God wants to unleash in you. And I feel like he wants to unleash it in me and our folks too. You know, I'm really revved up about this and feel like, you know, even now 51 years old in my 52nd year, I'm just scratching the surface of the love of God. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. You know, if all the oceans were ink, you know, we would not be able to, to write exhaustively in description of God's love. I'm, I'm really loosely there quoting a hymn, but it's just enormous. And I've cried out to God, Father, I want more of your love overflowing and water falling into, onto, and out of my heart. I know this is the thing, and it's, it's the key virtue, isn't it? The first fruit of the Holy Spirit. And the, the definitive characteristic of God, he is love. He is love because he is three. He's, he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is a family. God can't be love if there isn't a family that, Im, that is somehow, in Trinity, is the one God. He can't just create something and then love it to prove his love. Or he would depend on the thing created to define his characteristic. But all three always existed. Always. They were always sharing love with another. So God really is love. That's what and who he is. And he's compelled in his own nature to love, to create more so that he could love more. Not because he has to, in the sense that he depends on it, but because he is love. And he just is really generous, overly, wonderfully, recklessly. I'm sorry, just giving you a hard time. Just really generous. He has to share. He created. I mean, think of it so much so that when the beloved creation of humanity in the garden. Now, I believe that even in a state of innocence, if there was never a fall, humanity still had to develop along certain lines. And, and perform God's works on the earth, you know, subduing the earth. That would have taken time and development, you know. So he was still going to train us and graduate us into, a, you know, a, a greater a depth of love and closeness to his image. Uh, but, but in any case, he created humanity at, that would eventually become the bride of his son and share love in his family like no other creature. He created us with the capacity of love for which he is very jealous to enjoy. And that applies to you as an individual. You, you my sister, you my brother, you my friend, wherever you are in life, God has a real place in his heart just for you. You have great significance to him. We did, in general, as humans, we, we do, but I mean, in, in terms of being created, God created us with great significance to him. He created us with a depth because he wants to know us and he wants to be our friend. And there's something about you as an individual, me as an individual, that he really digs and, uh, and satisfies a place in his heart that no one else satisfies. And you need to understand that. You need to know that. This Okay, so back to my point. So much so 
that when we fell and committed the highest kind of treason and the deepest and worst kind of rebellion and turned everything for ourselves and became you know, abusers of God for our own selfish purposes, he sought us. And I'd like to close in prayer. There's just Sometimes you just got to follow the Spirit. Now, you may not have detected what I detected, but I heard a sound that showed me it was time to close. No, Liz is back there. She's only, I think, we're done now. She pressed the button. <laughs> oh, so much so that when we committed the highest kind of trees and the deepest kind of rebellion, he did not destroy us. He sought us. He sought us hard, and he suffered Though he was the only righteous one, the only one undeserving of the judgment, Jesus Christ suffered the consequences of our sins so that we could be released from the consequences of our sins. But not just that, but come back into the enjoyment of fellowship and our eternal destiny. We clearly have great value to God so that in our worst state, and original sinners are in a bad state, We're we're very guilty and deserve something very horrible. You know, God's love doesn't change those consequences. But even in our worst state, as this very text tells us, actually a few verses farther down than I might read, but this text reminds us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us in our ungodliness because he greatly valued and values us. He wanted to win us back and pay the price on his own heart and his own family, the blood and body of his son, to purchase us so that we could be his friends again. We could be his bride. We could be his children. We could be his temple. So praise God for that. But there's something very deeply inspirational and then practical that God wants to do, I believe, in your midst that will just release the mystery of God more and more in you and through you and create an even greater sense of family and community. So the whole New Testament model, it becomes far more organic when we learn how to be loved by God, how to love God, and how to love one another. Then we just find our way back by the Spirit and the wisdom of God to that form of church that He always intended. It's it's scandalously simple, but it is the, the best way to maximize love. Well, back to the main point here now, Romans 5. I'll read here. Just the, I think I'm just going to go as far as verse 5 also. So, verse 1 of Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been made righteous by faith, excuse me, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through Him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. Because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love 
has been poured out generously in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Abba, Father, thank you for these wonderful truths. Thank you, Abba, Father. Thank you. This is true. Jesus died for us. We know you love us. And you filled our hearts with the Holy Spirit, just soaking and saturating our inner core with your love. Thank you, Father God, for your love. Thank you for this new covenant. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the saints who are in the earth, the shining ones in whom is all your delight. Thank you, God, for the church. Thank you for the privilege to serve you in this world with all of its resistance and its bumps in the road and difficulties. Lord, we don't thank you for evil things, but we do thank you for your faithfulness during times that are difficult. Because if we can love you and serve you during the difficult times, then we can love you and serve you. And be trained for eternity in ways that only you can do in this world. Thank you for it all. Thank you, God. Thank you for our giving day and for the missionaries. And thank you for all these wonderful things. Thank you for this evening. Thank you for the word of the Lord. So now we ask that you will indeed fill our hearts in a fresh way with your love. We pray for the fresh touch of the Holy Spirit. We pray that our, the eyes of our hearts would be opened up and enlightened so that we could just see these eternal truths clearly and grasp, grasp them with conviction. Because Jesus is King, He's Lord, He's alive from the dead, and He deserves a people filled with His Spirit. So it's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to begin speaking actually from verse 5, and, and then we'll make some comments. I'll make some comments later about the rest of the passage moving back through. But the hope that Paul talks about, that hope that he's referring to will not disappoint us. We're not holding out for nothing. We won't look like fools. But we'll, we'll chat about that a little bit more later. But the reason we're so sure about the future is because, like the First John passage said, now we are children of God. Now we have assurance of God's love. In our hearts. Okay, it's writ in Scripture. We have it in Scripture. A clear testimony of a historical event. Christ died for the ungodly. We can remind ourselves of that as a reference point. We have it in history and we should believe the testimony of God in history. We have it in Scripture. It it accurately tells us that God demonstrated his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. I mean, usually Paul says you wouldn't even die for a good person, maybe a really good person. But God demonstrates his love for us even uh, in that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we have these scriptural, testimonial, historical reference point points. God loves us. Amen. But God also wants us to be assured of his love in a very, very joyful, experiential way. In our hearts. Experientially. In the center of who we are. God wants us to feel his love in the deepest way. Now I understand superficial emotions can be fickle. And sometimes you feel whatever. You're in a bad mood or you're cold. And you're not thinking of how much God loves you. And you don't feel really emotionally connected to that. I understand that. Or we go through a hard time and it seems dark. That's, that's actually part of the point. 
that sometimes we don't feel emotionally God's love, which is why we have these other objective testimonies in Scripture. We have people to remind us. But even so, we should still feel in the deepest sense of feeling, not on the superficial level of emotions that can be so fickle and can blow back and forth with the wind, wherever the wind is blowing and demonic forces and everything else, but in that deep place, the heart, Scripture calls it, the center of our being, the the essence of who we are, the heart, that's where God has given us the gift of the Spirit to be assured of His love. And it's part of the new covenant, it's part of the deal, part of the relationship, part of the privilege of being a Christian, that we can have that assurance deep in our heart by the Holy Spirit. Praise God. God wants to make our hearts strong by His love. The heart of a person is is just that. It's, it's, It's like the center and foundation and beginning of who you and I are. It's who we really are, the heart. That's why Jesus addressed the heart. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, I say... Don't even look with lust after a woman. Because if you do, you're committing adultery where? In your heart. The heart is what God sees. The heart is who we really are. You know, as a person thinks within himself, so he is. It's like the behavior, we can manipulate our own behavior to be different than what's inside of our heart. But God sees the heart. So he says, You've heard it said, don't commit murder. And whoever commits murder will be liable to the court. I say, don't be angry with your brother. If you're angry, you're liable to the court. And then if that produces even a word that's destructive or critical, that's disparaging of someone else, then you go to the Supreme Court. And if you say a worse word, then you're in danger of hell itself. Because the outward act of murder begins in the the heart with anger. So God says, well, as soon as you're angry, there's the spirit of murder operating. It's indirect, the way he puts it, but it's it's still there. It's the heart that he wants. On the positive end, when, when the heart is filled with the spirit, then it produces all kinds of good in us. God wants our hearts to be mighty in the love of God. Really, we've been gifted the spirit as it is if we've believed. He's in our hearts. In 1 Corinthians, we learn he's also in our physical bodies, but he's he's in our heart. The heart is the most powerful part of our body and our being. And even scientifically, I know I'm repeating myself for some of you, but whatever. So I, I listened to a lecture of some trained psychiatrist who showed us the statistics. It was documented. She's a Christian. And so she was talking about counseling or whatever, but it was just phenomenal. It was very intriguing that even the, 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 like the, magnetic, what's the magnetic waves, the energy that the heart produces is more than what the, the brain produces. I mean, you could have a genius, two geniuses on the exact same level. One could be a complete atheist based on the data. The other one could be a, a loyal servant of Jesus based on the data because it's really the heart that determines who we really are. It's not, just, it's not the mind. It's not our intellect. This is an important tool. We have to build our minds, but it's the heart that determines things, who we really are. We don't, we don't believe with our minds for salvation. We believe with our hearts. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. This, this 
if this faith comes out of the heart, that just brings you right into the kingdom with it. The Bible says, watch over your heart. Because from the heart flows the springs of life. That's where they come from. Right? God's after the heart and he's touching our hearts. We want our hearts to be mighty in the love of God. Amen. In Psalm 45, the psalmist says, my heart overflows. That's a good theme. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. I address my verses to the king. Come on, praise God. I want an overflowing heart. That's what I want. I want my heart to overflow with the love of God and the themes of God in my tongue. Everything else falls into place. Right? The, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus saw Jesus, walked with him on the road. They didn't even realize it was he at first. They sit down to eat with him. But before they sit down to eat, he's explaining from the scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer. That the disappointment they had that they had lost their Jesus was actually contrary to scriptural testimony. That if you're really looking at the scriptures, this man Jesus told them, it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and then to enter his glory. This wasn't a tragedy. This was the plan. You shouldn't be disappointed. You should be thrilled. But they don't know it yet. He's still explaining the scriptures. And then when he breaks the bread as the host, first he's the guest, then he's the host. He breaks the bread when they sit down to eat. He disappears, and they immediately realize he's alive. They're going to run back to Jerusalem to give the testimony. But what do they say to one another? Were not our hearts burning when he explained this, when we were walking on the road and he explained the scriptures to us? That's powerful. So even before the revelation that they saw the physical Jesus, they don't even refer to that. They say, when he was explaining the scriptures, our hearts were burning. That's when it was like, we're done. We're with this guy. Now, it was the icing on the cake that it was Jesus, and he appeared to them. But the word of God testifying truth touched their hearts, and that determined who they were and their faith and what the testimony was going to be. So, praise God, we... We need our hearts to be aflame with truth. We need our hearts overflowing with a good theme. A merry heart does good like a medicine. It says in Proverbs that a merry heart has a continual feast. May God give us mighty hearts in the love of God. And that love, that experience of his love comes by the Holy Spirit. It's one of the reasons why I try to practice with some consistency and generosity, just praying in the spirit. Okay, I don't do that just to just to do it because I come from a Pentecostal background or because I think it has some kind of advantage to make me more gifted and cool and slick in front of people. It's because I want a deeper connection with God and I want my inner person. I want my spirit edified, my heart. I want it edified and strong in the things of God. So it could take over these other aspects of me that are constantly and always weak. We need a strong heart. John the baptizer was strong in spirit. He was strong in his inner man. And in Ephesians 3, Paul prays that the the church is there that he's praying for in Asia Minor, that the, the spirit of God would strengthen them in the inner person so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. So he prayed for one move of God 
for them to have a strong spirit so that the Messiah could dwell in their community. I mean, theologically, technically, he already dwells there. But when there's little testimony, it's because the people's hearts are weak in the spirit of God and in the love of God. So Paul knew how to pray for his church, make their inner person strong by the spirit so that the Messiah can dwell in their hearts through faith. Otherwise, he's too dangerous. You have him living around here. And yeah, he's a lion. He's not safe, but he's good. As we were talking about that revelation of Jesus with the description there, or rather singing about it with the lyrics up there, I looked up at that stained glass window. With all due respect for the people who have that up there, I'm just not into that sort of thing. It just happened, happened to catch my eye. I don't, just not my thing. You know, stained glass windows or icons or something like this. Um, if that's my mom, just tell her I'm, I'm almost done. I'll, I'll catch up with her after the sermon. It's okay. It happens. Um, and I, I just glanced at it. As soon as I glanced at it, I felt the Spirit of God say, that's not what he looks like. You should see him. And you will. <laughs> I think it was before you read your passage. I think. I, I'm pretty sure. Um, well, uh, so he's, you know, his face shines with the strength of the sun. That's pretty bright. Right? 93 million miles away is the sun, and you can't look at it for more than several seconds. You'll damage your eyeballs. And it's 93 million miles away. What if it were in the same room with you? That's Jesus, kind of. He's probably, not probably, far greater. A million sons right there in the church. So Paul's like, I pray that you be strengthened in the inner person so that the Messiah may dwell in in your hearts through faith. We need a mighty heart filled with the love of God. All right, well, let me start preaching. No, no, I'm well into it. When Paul says the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, it's a very interesting phrase because the, the terminology shed abroad, is some of the translations are just poured out. Um, that's terminology that usually refers just to the Holy Spirit being poured out. The outpouring of the Spirit is the same term. But here Paul refers to God's love being poured out, like the Spirit is poured out, but by the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the carrier of God's love. So if he's overflowing in our hearts, well, then it's love that's going to be overflowing. When you read the rest of this passage about going through affliction and gaining character through it, what do you think God's trying to get his people to, to do? But to love selflessly rather than to quote love, love in quotes there, selfishly. Yeah, I love things that I desire, but I'm going to step on other people to get to it. And if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to get ticked off and leave or something like that. That's not love, which means that's not maturity, which means you're not going through afflictions very well. He says the love of God part in verse 5. There's other verses we're going to get back to. In any case, this, this outpouring of love is what he wants his people to be. Like he, wants, he wants us to experience our own belovedness so that we could overflow with love for others. And in Paul's mind, this is all thanks to the, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus that then qualifies those who believe to receive the Holy Spirit. The reception of the Holy Spirit was the great breakthrough moment. God's covenant people in the Old Testament had a great deal, but it was not nearly what we needed. It was better than any other nation. 
but it was not what humanity needed ultimately. It was a setup for the ultimate. God always has to set up for the greater thing. But when Christ came in the fullness of time, and he, and he died, and we who believe received the Holy Spirit, we are transformed. We receive new life. The Holy Spirit's in our hearts when we believe. That doesn't just take a moment. Okay, if you're a believer, if you're not, you could just believe. Just confess Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart. Just believe. Just give your life to Jesus. Live. And if you already do, which I would think is most of us, maybe all of us, just you could put your hand on your heart and say, right in there, the Holy Spirit's in there. He's bigger than that area in my chest cavity, but he's still in there. God's love by the Holy Spirit's inside of me. That's the new covenant. That's the power of the new covenant. That's where Paul's coming from. He, he says, by the Holy Spirit given to us, this great gift of God that transforms people. That is the new covenant. The gift of the Holy Spirit and our transformation so that God lives inside of us and awakens us and transforms us into a new kind of human species that is like God himself. Praise God. That's, that's the new covenant. It, it, when we say covenant, sometimes we can think just like, like a contract or technically. For God, covenant means love. He's, he loved us passionately so that he would not only save us, but transform us into something new. So this covenant is so great because his love is so great that he transforms us and we have a new experience on the inside. It's not just the slate wiped clean. We're made into a new kind of person because God loves us so much. He changes us on the inside. Now this is, we don't have our resurrection bodies yet. When we see him, we'll be like him. But now we are children of God. We do have the Holy Spirit. That's the new covenant. So we have the capacity to cultivate on the earth anything God requires of us, which basically is a loving community and all the glory they bring to Chicago or whatever city that we live in. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. God loves you deeply. So deeply, he got inside your deep. And he lives there to love you so that you can feel his love and that you could love others from that because that's what love is. Man, when you feel loved, you give love. Praise God. God loves you. He really does. God's love is a covenant love. It's a seeking love. The love of God's in our hearts. I mean, it's like a giant arrow just pierced us with love. I remember when I was first born again, I, I did not feel, you know, I was convicted of my sins right before I came to faith. But leading up to that, I was not weighted down with the feeling that I was guilty before God. I, to my knowledge, I didn't carry a burden. I had done some wicked things. There was a couple of areas in my life I was deciding to clean up just because I was trying to be responsible. And I had to go to college. And so I thought, you know, Tripping out and not being able to think and talk straight probably won't work for a, you know, a nice, healthy, long life. Although I probably would have just fallen back into that if it weren't for Jesus. But still, and certain things happened, made me afraid. I kind of sobered up a little bit. Um, I wasn't an addict or anything, but I enjoyed what I did until scary things happening happened. Uh, months and months after this one experience, I was still hearing the voices until Jesus came. Until I got saved, I was still hearing the voices. 
So I decided to get rid of all that. So I wasn't in the gutter when Jesus met me, like one of those testimonies. It's like, wow, you know, Todd White, the bullet came by and I realized, you know, no, not me. I call it the testimony of a common man. I was, I was a pretty decent kid when it came down. You know, I kind of cleaned my life up a little bit. And I wasn't feeling very religious like I needed that. I was pretty confident. But, you know, without going into the whole story, the Lord began to convict my heart. And um, I, you know, at, at church one day, because my mom got me to come to church, I, I went to the altar. I didn't even intend to give my life to Jesus. I just thought, I don't know. She says, go up there with your sisters. It was clever of her, so I went up there with my sisters. And a guy, uh, you know, he said, can I pray with you? And we started to talk. I wasn't too sure. And he, and, and he was telling me about the gospel, the need to be saved. And I said, well, if I give my life to Jesus, do, am I saved from the coming wrath? <laughs> that was my main concern. Some people say that's not even good enough to get saved on because it's selfish. Let me tell you something. I got saved. He says, yes. I said, all right, pray on. He's like, repeat after me. Now, this is, this is incidental. This doesn't serve my story, but since we're having a nice, fun chat, this is my first time truly praying. I said some Hail Marys when I thought we were going to have a shipwreck in our sailboat in, uh, in the Atlantic Ocean. That's, that's separate. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think those pagan prayers counted. Um. So this is my first time really praying, and I'm going to repeat after him. Now, this guy was something else, man. He was this young Italian dude. He was older than me. He was in his 20s. But I just mean, he was cleaned up, man. He was all trimmed. He had this going. You know, just the, this, this, this church was, had a really cool ethnic diversity, a lot of Italians in particular, a lot of Cubans in particular, and some Caribbean folks. I mean, it was a beautiful church. It was one of the things that got me saved was this mixed family of people that just loved God and loved me. I'm telling you, it helped bring me to the Lord. That, and I didn't want to go to hell. Those two things together were like, yes, serve Jesus. This guy was leading me in prayer. And I'll tell you what, talk about minty licorice breath. I mean, no fear with this guy praying. He was ready for the altar call, man. I remember his, even his nails were done right. Now, and I'm not like, you know, normally noticing this, but I'm like, look at this guy. Good night. And he's, you know, he's so good. He, but what a genuine, loving man led me to the Lord. And so we're, he, he's taking me phrase by phrase through a prayer, and I would repeat what he said each time. And then he says something I didn't hear. So it's going, you know, A, B, C. Then I say A, B, C. He says D, E, F. I say D. I'm repeating nicely. Then he says, and I'm like, okay, what do I do? Because A, number one, this prayer thing is new to me. I don't, you're. I assumed you're not allowed to just pause and say, what was that? You're praying to God. You're getting saved right now. Don't pause. What was that? Can you pause a second? I just have to use it. You don't do that. It's like, you have to do this. So I, I have a dilemma. But at the same time, I can't just not say anything. So the best I knew, I didn't say words. Maybe I, this is tongues for the first time. I just repeated the sounds, whatever consonants and vowels, I mean, whatever it was. Kind of one I It's kind of distracting when you're trying to get saved, trying to give your life to Jesus. And I did it, and I apparently was successful. 
because I think his name was Anthony. I mean, Anthony just carried right on. Gave, went to the next phrase. I'm like, phew. Oh, but my other thing was like, okay, this, this was my main fear. Like, what, if, what do I do? I mean, this is God we're dealing with. What if I do this wrong? I mean, what's at stake here? I can't interrupt. I was, you know, I was afraid of the Lord. But we carried through, and he seemed to be okay with it, so I trusted him, and on we went. So I left the front of that church. I walked back to the pew with my mom. I remember going home that night in the car on the way home and then going upstairs to tell my dad that I gave my life to Jesus. And I could not believe how light I felt. I was under a weight that was like the size of this building, and I had no idea. I told you I did not feel the weight of sin before. I didn't. I was confident. I cleaned a few things up. But when I left that altar, I thought, man, I was carrying something. I didn't know because I feel like I could fly right now. You know what that was? That was the Holy Spirit assuring me of God's love. The sins are gone, and I'm a new creation. I didn't even know how to put words to it. But I thought, man, I feel different. I felt light. I thought, man, I, it's, it's almost like I don't feel gravity the same. And you know what? It's a lightness I felt ever since that now I'm used to it. But I don't take it for granted, though. But I, it, there was a weight I didn't even know was there because I was not consciously guilty. I mean, it, right at the last minute there, hearing the gospel, listening to this guy, I realized I need, I need Jesus. Don't get me wrong. But it was not just one of these knocked down, drag out, strung out, prison, you know, 100 years of, of, of a hard, of a hard fought life whatever I'm trying to say, then God rescued me. I just was a kid who was pretty confident, didn't think I needed the Lord until I realized I could very well go to hell. So I gave my life to Jesus, and boom, something lifted away from me and came inside of me that was new and alive. Now, here's what's interesting. After I had that, that, that experience of this weight being lifted, I began to go through an immediate crisis of faith. It's just not a very rhythmic story. It's not very romantic. I struggled right away. As, as sinful as I was before, if you would have asked me, is there a God, is Jesus his son, though that's all I knew, I would have said yes with conviction. Not saving conviction, but I really, be- well, in my mind, I accepted that. Now that I've surrendered my life to him, I'm like, wait a minute. I now am, I have to obey the, a, a very large invisible person. I'm changing everything for someone that it's just not, where is this person? As a theory, I was happy with this, but now I'm like, how do I do this? And I really struggled. So I'd be, I, I would pray. I would, I would spend time with the Lord, but I would pray. How about some miracles? Can you do some things for me to help assure my heart? And nothing like that happened. And then things got worse because... I worked at this place where one of the managers was a Christian, so she introduced herself, and we began to talk. We had something in common. I was very happy with that. Come to find out later that she was in a cult, and she believed all kinds of weird, crazy, nutty, anti-unscriptural, anti-Christ things about Jesus. And she was beginning to feed me with this stuff, and I had no one else deliberately discipling me except this cult person. Now, that's a, a recipe for not a successful discipleship course. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I had great relationships in the church. There wasn't like just a deliberate mentoring going on, but there was a lot of osmosis, and I was really connected with the kids my age. Um, and this is continuing to, yeah, even though it's off, right? I mean, the, the, yeah, the screen is going. Okay. So, I mean, the family part was good, and it's ultimately what held me together. But there wasn't deliberate teaching with that, so I became vulnerable to this lady because she was explaining things from the Word. It was all twisted, but I was so new. I, I, I knew so little. It's one of the things why I really love the Scriptures now and why I'm devoted and I think why it became a strength because it was such a weakness in my first days as a believer. And even before the lady, I used to you know, put my Bible open on my bed and read, you know, devotedly at night and then pray. And I'd sometimes wake up at three in the morning on my knees. My legs are all asleep. I mean, I was trying, but I couldn't understand a word the Bible was saying. I'm like, who talks this way? You know, I'm used to TB, where they chew it all up for you and then put it in your mouth so you don't have to think. This, these texts, I, I mean, call them texts, the Bible, I don't get this. It's like, how do these Christians, how do they operate? How does this work? I was I was, in a sense, resistant to the very thing I'd given my life to. And then when this lady comes with her waves of confusion, it really got to me. I mean, I really struggled. I'd come home after work, and it was the middle of the night, and I would cry out to God, why did you choose me? It's a terrible thing to say. I don't recommend it. But I really struggled. Because here's the thing. It's like, this lady's confusing me. I, now, I don't know who you are. I, I, I already had a hard time relating to you. Now, I really don't know who you are. And yet, you've gripped a hold of me. I can feel it in my spirit. I was going through a crisis, and I'll tell you, I wanted, I, I, it's, it's like I couldn't believe. I would ask God to do, demonstrate some kind of miracle so I could believe. But if you would have cornered me and asked me, do you feel the witness in your heart that you're a child of God? I would have said, you know what? With everything in me, I do. I never had this before. But he, it, it feels like he's enslaved me to himself. In my heart, I feel bound by a covenant that I can't explain. Which gave me a deep assurance with all this confusion going on up here. This is going to be settled. Because that's why I used to, and this is so, confu- so confusing, I know. It was, it was silly. I was just a kid confused and saying, why did you choose me? Here's why I said, why did you choose me? That's an ugly thing to say. It's not very grateful. I don't recommend it. Kids, you understand qualifying it. But here's why I said, why did you choose me? Because number one, uh, it's like I can't relate to you at all. And it's very, very hard. You know, it's supposed to be my life and I can't do it. But number two, I can never, ever in a million billion years walk away from you. You've bound me. I could feel it. You've bound me. I'm with you, Jesus, forever. But I can't know you, so why me? Because I knew I couldn't get out of it, even though I really could if I wanted to. I didn't feel like I could. Because he had gripped me in the inner person. Even a young man in a crisis of faith had the love of God shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Spirit. And then God sorted all that out. He certainly did. After about a year's time, I remember just, yes, <laughs> being liberated. I mean, it was a process. It wasn't a moment. But after about a year, I'm like, yes. Okay, let's do this thing. Praise God. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. 
by the way, I never got all my miracles. Just one other time, the Lord came in my room and spoke to me. I didn't see him, but I felt him. And even after that, I'm like, did that really happen? But then I began to grow more in the things of the spirit, the gifts of the spirit, the supernatural, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, you get the idea. The love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit is a reality. Amen. 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 All right, then. Let us carry on. Let's move backwards a little bit. To the, we'll just take a few lines and say a few more comments on this one by one. <clears throat> the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The Father wants you to know a Father's love in a new way. He wants you to feel cared for and protected by the love of God witness in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Like overwhelmingly cared for, protected, and blessed. God loves you, and one of the main things is he'll protect you and he'll take care of you. One of the main things, that's two things. My daughter Faith ministered to me sharing something the other day. Just She was giving testimony at the table to some things when we were eating together, things in her heart. She's 18. Um, but when she was little, she told us she'd be afraid at night. I mean, I guess little kids battle that no matter how well they're parented. <laughs> Just, I guess, you know because it was dark or whatever, but she'd say, you know, when you'd put us to bed, she said you'd pray for us. And she told us you're just the best parents, especially you, Dad. And no, she didn't really say that. But she just, you know, she was like very protective. Don't get me wrong. You know, you guys prayed for us and you, you encouraged us. And, but when I would go, when the lights were out and I just had to lay there, I'd be afraid. She said, but then I would always pray. And she was just this little darling little gal. She just was the most darling kid, little brown girl. It was the cutest thing with her big brown eyes, and she just had a certain way about her. And she said, I prayed, and I, I felt God showing me, I'm with you. I'll protect you and keep you safe. I'll take care of you. And she said, and the fear would only be up until I prayed that, and then he would settle my heart every time. And I learned that the Father loved me from when I was a little girl. I would pray to him myself. I just want to tell you that the Father will take care of you. Yeah, but you don't know what's happening. That's the, that, those afflictions underline his love. Because he doesn't take care of everything in the natural right away. Or sometimes a little beyond right away. That's the time that we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts assuring us the Father loves you. He'll protect you. He will take care of you. That's what life is about right there. Everything comes out of that assurance as this passage shows us. Okay, so to verse 1. Since we have been made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I, forgive me for this. You, got, you don't have a time limit, but, but when did I start speaking? Do you remember? I try to monitor that, and I always forget. Does anybody remember? Before 6.30. Okay. Oh, it was 6.15. Liz is back there saying, no, it was like 5.30, Bob. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> what, what's that? I've been going 45 minutes? Wow. All right, let me just take a few more minutes. It's 7 o'clock. Seriously, isn't this very wise of me to draw such attention to the time? That's good preacher's advice. I've already been preaching too long, and now I'm going to go for the rest of the half of my message. Actually, it's the half of my preface. Just kidding. Why do I subtly 
anticipate slash fear that sound coming back to end that climactic sound, and he's done. <laughs> you did set it up? Okay, you get it. No, no, I'm not really asking. I'm just asking for kind of like an implicit an implicit assurance that it's okay, but no, I want to be sensitive. I know we got little ones and all that. Okay. So when we're declared righteous or we're made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, peace is a very deep and dynamic word. It doesn't only mean the absence of enmity. It means we have friendship with God and we're related and we're in the same family. We're deeply connected. This is a rich, powerful word. When Paul speaks about peace among the community, he means people who would otherwise not even have a relationship, or they would have enmity. They would have anger or hate or at least prejudice. In Christ, they have peace, which means they're blended into a family now. So we're blended in unity, indeed, union with God. We're friends with God. So when this little, this little Romans road here takes us into the afflictions, it's like, well, everybody on earth goes through difficult times. Some people go through horrific times, and they're, they're not, they don't even know Jesus. That's the difference. What Paul is saying here, for those of us who know Jesus, we have justification, which means we're made right, we're forgiven, and we're in covenant with God. But we also have peace with God, so that when we go through afflictions, we have friendship with Almighty God. Which means not only can we make it and be okay on the other side, but God can use it to make, it, make us better. And that's the way the love of God operates. So what other people just go through, we can go through to become more like Jesus. That's the power of the love of God. But we have peace with God. We have that friendship. Verse 2, we've also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So Paul often puts in front of us as believers, the scriptures then overall, Before us as believers, we have the vision of a great future beyond this world. When Paul speaks of glory here, there's many dimensions of that. But I'm thinking he's 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 moving toward chapter eight when he when he speaks about the glory of God being the renewal of creation after the the end when we are raised from the dead and all of creation is liberated from its decay into the to the glory of the freedom of the children of God. So, you know, Paul says, you know, momentary light affliction can't even be, well, I'm mixing text, but what I suffer now can't even be compared to the weight of glory that I will experience after Jesus raises me from the dead. We must have a vision of the future. It's not about this life. We, we, we work in this life and we grow in this life for the sake of the age to come. So Paul says, when we're friends with God and we stand in this grace, we're, we, we boast and rejoice that a glorious future is ahead of us. When Christ comes back and raises us from the dead and renews creation, and then we really get going into the meaning of life forever. So in view of eternity, God has a plan for our lives now. And that plan is not merely a specific vocation. It's to become like Jesus. That's what counts in eternity. Therefore, he goes on to say, 
we, re- we, we rejoice or we boast in the hope of the glory of God in verse 3. Not only that, but we boast in our afflictions. Now remember, we started at the end of this passage where we're assured of the love of God. We're assured of it. We're overflowing with love. At the beginning, we're told we have this friendship, so to speak, with God. Not so to speak, but peace is just richer than that. It goes beyond. But we have this union with God. We have the love of God. So when we go through afflictions, we can not only do it with a, with a different kind of hope, but we could go through it knowing God has a strategy. I'm not saying that evil things that happen are from the Lord. Sometimes the devil attacks. That's illegal, but he'll still do it. Sometimes we do stupid things and make ourselves suffer. But even so, when we make our hearts right with God, he can still even use those things. He may not have created them, but he could use, or you know, cause them, but he can use them, let alone sometimes we walk through a wilderness. God wants to use that strategically. So he says, why do we boast in our afflictions? Because affliction produces endurance. And the word there to produce, I mean, that's a good word to translate it, but it's a really dynamic word. I mean, it, it works. Endurance in us. That's what God's after. Results. Jose was telling us last night, we, we go for the wrong results, and we sometimes put a religious pressure on us. Too, CB and Carol were saying the same things. But there is a, these kinds of results, Jose was telling us, that's what God wants. Christ-like character. That's what God's after. That's it. We think more external results. God thinks internal, and based on the internal, then, yeah, let's multiply that as much as we can. That's good. Afflictions produce. They work in us endurance or patience, your Bible may say. The word in Greek means to to remain under. You're remaining. Like when Jesus says, abide in me, that the the verb is similar to the noun here. You, You remain under. It's like, The the affliction doesn't crush you, but you remain under it, not under its oppression, but in other words, you don't give up. And then that exercises the muscle of not giving up, so you become strong and durable in life. I remember uh, flying on a plane. I fly a lot. I hit turbulence fairly frequently. It doesn't even phase me. But one time I was flying... And the turbulence was so bad, and you know, you hit those pockets, you could just slam down, and it's like you hit a floor, boom. Sometimes it's kind of funny if you look at all the people in front of you, because the plane, everybody moves with the plane the same, and all their heads bop at the same time. So if you're watching the right way, it's also a good distraction if you're kind of afraid. Everybody in front of you, like I got all these rows in perfect sync. It's like, it, it's, it's like a, a dance routine. All their heads are bobbling, and it's all the same. It's like, that is awesome. Got a little music going in the background. But this was worse. And I was starting to feel in my heart, I might start to get afraid in a minute, which really isn't like me. And it was almost like I was getting tempted to decide to become afraid because it, it felt very insecure and very rough. And the Lord spoke to me and said, these are made for turbulence. And I just had assurance, like the the way the airplane is designed is it's meant to hit this rough air. It feels rough, but they're made to endure turbulence. You're going to get where you're going. They designed the plane that way. But of course, there's that double meaning. You're made for endurance. God built you, especially in Christ and the Holy Spirit, to endure afflictions. You're going to make it through. 
You're built for this. It's not pleasant. You don't invite it. But when it happens, God's love is so great, and the way he made you is so wonderful, you're going to make it through. In fact, the more you pop around, the better you get at it. Right? As opposed to quitting in the extreme leaving the faith. Because it's easier to just suffer the other way, I guess. I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. But still, some people get so upset by afflictions, they can turn away from the Lord. But usually Christians don't do that. Usually Christians just begin to whine and complain. Or criticize other people, blame other people. That's, to me, that's a way of not enduring. The whole point is to walk with Jesus. And, you know, I've been tempted in my own life. I failed in my own life in these areas. And in being in leadership, I've seen a lot of people. I've gotten blamed for things that when other people are going through their problems, sometimes the leaders get blamed because I've been tempted to do the same thing myself so I can understand when other people do it. But still, criticism comes out. Come on. The, The whole point of the affliction is so that we can become like Jesus during those times. Rather than letting those things bring the worst out of us, let them put in us the best of God. Let them mature us. We who have the love of God can translate afflictions into proven character, as the text says next. We can endure these things and let them make us more like Jesus. Amen? When I taught in Italy a few months ago, They had these olive trees, like real olive trees, that they make olive oil. And there was, you know, the guy that works with these trees was showing me, just right on the property where I was doing the teaching. It's really cool, Mount Olive, where here we are. That's such a compliment. But the olives, when they're getting ripe, are really dark, like dark purple, and then they start to get black. But some of them look ripe, because when they're not ripe, they're green. But then they get like that dark purple, and then they start to get black. And then they'll even get black, but they look ripe, but they're not always ripe yet. They still have to ripen. So an olive that looks ripe but isn't, you bite into that bad boy, and it's not a pleasant thing. It doesn't produce something sweet, or however you term an olive's taste. But, you know, grape is the same thing. They can look They could look ripe, but if they're not ripe and you squeeze them, something sour comes out. So I plucked one, and I wasn't sure. I gave it to the guy translating. I said, what do you think? He's like, I'm not going to eat it. We talked him into it. He talked himself into it, and he ate it, and it looked ripe, but it wasn't ripe. You should have seen his face. You know how like a persimmon or something or some fruit that's not right, it just kind of sucks your cheeks in? That's the way he did. He's like, It looked ripe, but it wasn't. So when you squeeze it, something sweet does not come out. God wants to train us through afflictions so that when we're squeezed, we don't get ugly, but rather something sweet comes out. You see what I'm saying? Like that's the way grapes are. You don't smash grapes that aren't aren't ripe. They have to be ripe. When something's mature, when you squeeze it, something ugly doesn't come out. Something sweet does. That's like Jesus. You squeeze him and just more of the character of God comes out. Then he got so crushed, the blood came out that saved anyone who believes. That was some sweet wine coming out of Jesus. He wants us to develop. We can't save other people, but we sure can display the character of Christ. So that when you let afflictions 
produce in us endurance and then endurance proven character. When we're squeezed, it's not something ugly that comes out. It's something sweet. That's why he says at the end, the love of God has been shed abroad. But only when we go through these troubles do we learn how to let the love out. So one other phrase here, it's really very similar, but I'll just say one last thing and we'll move. We'll we'll close. Endurance produces proven character. When we've gone through things without quitting, but rather hanging on to the Lord, when we get on the other side of it, we grow. And after we've gone through several stages of growth, something sweet begins to mature and develop inside of us. You can't get this in in a nice meeting. And you can't even just get it at school. You got to get this in life. How many of you have fine china at home? You have some, you own or have owned fine china. I don't know much about china. When I was preaching in this one place, the guy was translating for me, starts talking about the, the nation of China. And people are like, no, no, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about dishes and teacups. I guess this porcelain that, you know, that formed into, into the, you know, this, this, these beautiful dishware and whatever, is made from a certain kind of clay. It's a certain kind of clay that then it's formed a certain way, and then it goes through what? It goes through the fire to make it beautiful and valuable. And when it's done right, it goes through ovens that are upwards of 22 to 2,600 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's already a precious kind of clay, a certain kind of clay, formed by people who know how to work it. And then it goes through the fire over and over and over and over again. And then it's, I mean, it, it's, it becomes this, this beautiful, you know, then when it's glazed and it's painted with the right materials, it becomes beautiful. But it's also, there's the thinner versions that are probably more breakable. But when they make it a certain way, it's very, very hard. And yet it, 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 it has a sheen and it can even be translucent. It won't let water through, but it will let a certain amount of light through. It's just part of its beauty while it's so strong. And the finest kind of china that's, that's made right, one of its qualities is it has resonance, which means when you thump it, it sings. The real fine porcelain, okay, not the toilet por- porcelain, the fine stuff that's gone through the fire and has been crafted by a master craftsman and painted and glazed. In a beautiful way. When you thump it, it sings. When you thump it, it goes bye, bye, bye. But you know, there's also the fake kind of china. It hasn't gone through as much fire. It was made more quickly without the affliction of the fire. It looks, uh, it looks the same to the naked eye, but it wasn't made with the same care, the same depth of expertise, and the same amount of fire. It's cheap, but it looks like the rest until you thump it. And then it just goes, doink. So maybe outwardly, we might all look the same. You know, the olives can kind of look the same, but when you actually press the thing, you know if it's been developed. When you thump the porcelain that's been made through the fire, it will sing rather than give you some donk sound back, right? We want to be that fine china. Come on now. Don't waste your fires. Think in terms of eternity. The issue is you and I have the love of God in our hearts. These afflictions can produce endurance and let endurance. Well, I'm I'm again blending text, but endurance creates proven character. 
The china that's gone through the fire, it's the real deal. It's beautiful. It looks so beautiful, it almost looks fragile. But you really, this kind of china, you can't break it. And when you thump it, it sings. Praise God. We know we go through these things with strategy because we have hope. And we're assured of our hope because we're assured of God's love overflowing in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Jesus is king. Let us stand. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this hope, this great love, where we can live this life and you could redeem everything to make something beautiful in us. We live in an image-based society. We want the fine china made in a day. But God cannot be faked. When you thump it, we want to be able to sing, right? And you can't get that in a moment. We get that through the fire, praise God, over time as he helps us. And we, we, we can redeem it all because the love of God is in our core. May our hearts become mighty in his name. Praise God.